Welcome to the Garden City Chapel Podcast. Today's audio comes from the first sermon in a series on Romans by Pastor Robert Shaw. For a complete archive of podcasts, make sure to check out our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. How many of y'all remember that show? Even some of the students, y'all seen that show? I think there was only about four episodes of it because they just kept repeating it. But the big theme for our summer is rescue. There were a lot of things that cracked me up about that song. Number one, the first few seasons, there's only seven people on the whole island. But two of them get left out because at the end it just says, and the rest. Why they couldn't just talk about the professor and Marianne, they finally added them into the song. The other thing about it is the end of the show, they would talk about the fact it was so primitive, you know, no luxuries, and yet they had a radio. The professor had a lot of his books, a lot of, uh, a lot of his experimental uh, supplies like test tubes and those kind of things. The, it was supposed to be a three-hour trip. And in the three-hour trip, you know, the, the movie star still has all of her wardrobe. And, uh, you know, it's just the seven of them on an island. One of the things they do is create a club. This is exclusive membership only club. There's only seven people. And yet they're visited by spaceships, helicopters, boats, if you remember the show. And yet, you know, finally they are finally rescued. Well, here's the point really of the whole summer as we look at the book of Romans, and that is this. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. In the case of Gilligan and his cohorts, the seven of them, they were finally rescued by a boat that comes, and they had a you know, series-ending finale. In fact, I think they had movies after that. There, there's even been some reality shows based around the theme of Gilligan's Island, even before Survivor. But you and I need to be rescued from something far more serious than being stranded on a desert island that really kind of looked pretty cool, actually. I don't, think, you know, I don't know if I'd lived there a few years. I might decide, you know what, I'd just stay here. This is pretty nice. And one of the themes you'll see through Romans is this issue of being rescued. And one of the points I want to get to today is this. You can't be rescued if you don't know you need to be rescued. So let's look at how Paul begins this letter, this important letter. Paul writes 13 letters in the New Testament. And I would say Romans is probably, you heard the probably, depending on who you talk to, I think Romans is the most important one that he writes. In fact, some of the great men of old, people like Augustine, says in his own words that he came to spiritual life through reading the book of Romans. Martin Luther, Martin Luther, in reading the book of Romans, actually said, it's the purest gospel. And so this, this letter to the Romans is incredibly important. And I just want to unpack a few things right at the beginning of the letter of Paul to the Romans. I'm just going to read the first few verses and then pick back up in later points. So let's look at just the first seven verses. It's really kind of an introduction. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. 
to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's just the introduction. That's seven verses. In fact, that's one sentence. I don't know how your English teachers would handle that if you wrote that much and it was one sentence, but that's really all that is. And it's just Paul's introduction. In that day and age, they did something I kind of wish we did, although we don't write letters a lot anymore. We do emails, and you know who the email's from before you open it. But, you know, in the days of letters, you didn't know who wrote the letter till the very end. It kind of you sign it at the end of it sincerely or yours truly, and you put your name there. But the pattern in this day and age was when you wrote a letter, you, first thing you told is who it was from. Then you told who it was to, and typically you had some kind of blessing as a part of the greeting. Well, Paul does that, and this is the longest greeting out of 13 letters that Paul writes, and there's a reason for that. Paul didn't, had never been to Rome. Paul knew he needed to kind of introduce himself in the beginning of this and justify a little bit of who he was. And so we're going to look at that, first of all, just with the name Paul. Paul, who was Paul? Well, his name at birth was the name Saul, which the name Saul means asked for or prayed for. And that goes back to the Old Testament when uh, the children of Israel begged God for a king. Please give us a king. And so they, he gave him a king, and his name was Saul. Well, Saul, a Hebrew in the now the New Testament, was a Jew among Jews, uh, literally a persecutor of the church. That's what he was up to in his mission in life. And yet he has an experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Jesus gives him a new name. His new name is Paul, and the name Paul means small or little. In fact, there's some indication that Paul was a short guy. One thing we know from Scripture is he wasn't much to look at. And so they just think he really wasn't that imposing physically. But more than that, Paul considered himself the least of these. He, he declared himself, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the last of the apostles. I'm at the end of the list. And yet, he's the greatest single writer in the New Testament. We owe a lot to this author by the name of Paul. And then he uses an interesting term. He uses the term bondservant. Bondservant. Literally, a slave of Jesus Christ. In Exodus chapter 21, we, we see this term of slave. But if you want to jot this down, I'm not going to flip there. I'm not going to put the words up on the screen. But in Exodus 21, it, it talked about this issue of bondservant. In the Old Testament, they had slaves that could be bought, and you typically served for six years. But on the seventh year, you were set free. But something could occur during those six years, and that is the slave could decide, you know what, I like it here. This guy has treated me well, and I now have a family here. I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to leave this master. And so I'm not going to become a free man. I'm going to stay a slave. And so if that happened, the way you would know that that guy was a slave is he'd have a hole in his ear. This may have been the first ear piercing that took place back there among men. But you would take him over to the door or the doorpost, and you'd take an awl, and the owner would knock a hole in his ear, and it would tell everybody else, this guy has chosen voluntarily, voluntarily to become and, and remain a slave for the rest of his life. So Paul uses that kind of terminology. He doesn't just say, Paul, a preacher of the gospel. Paul says, here's the way I view myself now. I am a slave, voluntary submissiveness to Jesus Christ. That's who I am. That's what would describe me now. And you may ask, well, did Paul have a hole in his ear? I don't know. I know some preachers have holes in their head. But I don't know that Paul's got the hole in his ear. Probably not. 
But that's the term he uses throughout his writings. That's how Paul considered himself. This one guy who was a Jew among Jew, a Pharisees among Pharisees, was kind of a hero. You know, kind of the, kind of the, the movie star among Pharisees. And yet now that he's come to Christ, he says, you know what, I consider all that stuff is just trash. And I now take joy in the fact that I'm a servant of the Most High God. So Paul talks a little bit about himself. First thing he tells us is he's a bondservant. The next thing is he is called. He is called an apostle. He was called by Jesus on the road to Damascus. In fact, the calling was so intense it knocked him to the ground. And Jesus speaks to him. And he couldn't see for a little while after that. In fact, he went into training for a little while after that. But Paul acknowledges, I've been, I, didn't, I didn't assume this office. This wasn't something I studied for. This wasn't something I demanded. And he needed to explain that to people he had never met. Because people could say, who does this Paul think he is? Paul says, no, you've got to understand, I, I'm, I'm not writing this on my behalf. I've been called as an apostle. The word apostle is an important word. It means commissioned messenger or delegate for Christ. There's some in these days that call themselves apostles, but the office of apostle consisted of really 13 people. The 12 disciples take Judas out of the picture, Matthias, it took his place, and now Paul, and Paul considers himself the last of these people. And so Paul has been called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel, literally separated from everything that was in his past and everything that's in his present, Paul set apart for one thing. Everybody look at me. What does the word gospel mean? Because this word is used in this letter to Romans a bunch. In fact, in Paul's 13 letters, the word gospel is used four times as much as it is in anywhere else in the New Testament put together. You take all the other books in the New Testament, and the, and the instances of the word gospel in those, Paul uses it 14 more, four more times in that. And so it's an important word. What does it mean? It means good news. If you remember the angels when they appeared to the shepherds after the birth of Christ, what did they say? Well, first thing he said was, don't be afraid. <laughs> if you ever see angels in Scripture, typically the first thing out of their mouth is, don't be afraid. Why? Because people were afraid. They weren't used to angels showing up, especially when you're a shepherd about to fall asleep on a hillside guarding sheep. Don't be afraid. But he says, we're not here to kill you, basically. We're here with good news. Good news. Now, the, the Romans were used to hearing this term. If something happened in the emperor's household, for instance, if his wife has just delivered a baby, there would be a messenger that would go out into the street and scream out loud at the top of his lungs, Good news! Good news! Literally, euangelion, gospel, got good news. The emperor's wife has delivered a son. Or, the emperor's son has come of age. Or, the emperor's son has now succeeded to the throne. He's become the new emperor. Good news! So these people were used to that. They were used to the term. Paul says, I got good news. I've been set apart to share this good news. And this good news has been promised beforehand. When I read that study in this week, I thought, well, isn't everything promised beforehand? <laughs> in order for it to be a promise, it doesn't have to be promised beforehand. But it's really important why Paul uses that term. He's writing to people who could look at him and say, is this some new message? Is this something new? Are you trying to take the Old Testament and do away with it? And Paul's saying, absolutely not. Go to the Old Testament and you will see prophecies about Jesus Christ. Well, they've been fulfilled. Prophecies about a Messiah that is to come. Well, they've been fulfilled. The Messiah is here. And the Jews would deny that. 
And so Paul's saying anybody in Rome, or if this letter circulated outside of Rome, anybody that would say, hey, is this some, some Johnny-come-lately message? No, Paul says, no, this is good news you've been hearing about for hundreds of years. And it's finally come to completion or fulfillment in the person of Christ. And then he talks about who the good news is about. He talks about Jesus concerning his son. And really two things that he talks about. First of all, is, first of all is he's of the seed or lineage of David, which spoke to Christ's hum- humanity. Jesus, fully man, but also fully God, of the seed of David, which fulfilled the Old Testament prophecy. But more than that, declared the Son of God with power. Humanity, seed of David, divinity, Son of God. And he was declared that with power. Hey, don't get confused about the word declared. You could kind of think, well, you know, did God just kind of make that up at the cross? No, the word declared means to mark out. It's where we get our word horizon from. If you walk out on the beach today, you can't see the horizon as well anywhere else but at the beach. But if you look out at the beach, you'll look out at an ocean that goes on. It just I don't know how many miles we can see out there. But at some point, you look up from the end of the ocean into the sky, and that's called the horizon. It's, it's a boundary that's marked out. And what Paul is saying is when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it declared to everybody in power that he's the Son of God. Now, he had been declared that before. He was the Son of God when he was born and placed in a manger. He was the Son of God when he was baptized and the Spirit, like a dove, fell upon him and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. But at the cross, we celebrated last week the death, the burial, and finally, the resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday. And that's with power. In fact, just the word we get, the word for power is the word for dynamite. I watch a lot of Westerns, and they always bought dynamite to blow up stumps on the farm. Well, folks, when Paul used the word dynamite, it was simply the most powerful thing he could think of at the time. Maybe now, instead of translating to dynamite, it would be more like atomic bomb. That's what blew up when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He conquered death. He became a victor over the grave. And he really thwarted the plan that Satan had in operation at the time, thinking he had accomplished something by having him put to death. So that's who Paul is lifting up now at the beginning. of This is just the introduction. But it's telling you what he's going to talk about throughout the rest of the gospel. He says he's been declared the Son of God with power. Then he goes on in verse 5 and talks about the fact we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. In other words, Paul says, here's my mission. God's called me as an apostle. He's put me in the game. You may play on a, on a team where the coach just has a, a roster that, you know, that maybe you never get in the game, but you're on the team. Well, God doesn't have any bench sitters. And so as, just in the same way that Paul's called to a mission, he's going to go on and talk about the fact that we're called to a mission as well. And God puts us all in the game. He's got a plan for all of us and a purpose for all of us. And we need to know what that is. And more than that, we need to be about fulfilling that. So he said, I've been called as an apostle. I've been, I have received grace. That word's going to be used a lot in Romans. Here's my favorite definition for grace. Receiving something you don't deserve. The Sunday school answer, and it's a good answer, is it's God's unmerited favor. What does that mean? 
It means God is giving you something you don't deserve. Because what you deserved was death. But what you get is grace. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. But I did read this week that somebody, uh, Donald Barnhouse said, Love that is directed upward is worship. Love that is directed outward is affection. But love that stoops is grace. And that only comes from God. So Paul's talked a little bit about himself. He's talked about Jesus. Now he talks about the people he's writing the letter to. And he said, you're the beloved of God. You're the ones that have received God's unconditional love. Not something you earned. God loves you because you're his. Not because of something you've done. And you're called as saints. And the last thing he said, and this would be similar in in a letter from anybody, and that is he simply says, I offer you grace and peace. Literally, I offer you God's unmerited favor. I offer you what God gives you without you deserving it. And also offer you peace. That was a, a familiar word throughout the Old Testament. In fact, it's the word shalom. If you encounter a Jew today, if you travel to Israel, walking through the airport, one of the things you're going to hear is shalom. It doesn't just mean hello, but it means peace. And it carries more than just peace with your fellow men. It really means peace with God. And they don't just say it when they say hello. They say it when they say goodbye, too. <laughs> What you say when you greet is shalom. What you say when you're saying bye is simply shalom. In other words, go in peace. So Paul begins this letter with this introduction, and then he turns to his thankfulness. Let me share the next couple of verses with you, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, first, okay, gotten through this whole sentence that we now have broken up into seven verses, but first, let me tell you why I'm writing you. I thank God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how I unceasingly make mention of you, always in my prayers making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. So Paul really begins after the introduction of simply saying, you know what, I am so thankful for you. Most of these people he had never met, he had only heard about them. And so he says, I thank God. I'm expressing gratitude towards God. Why? Because of your faith. Where did these people come to faith? Just jot down Acts chapter 2. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the word is being preached, it gives you a list of all the places that people were from. And one of those places was Rome. So the gospel message from the beginning has come now out of Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, 10 days after his ascension. The disciples are waiting for the Spirit to come, and the Spirit falls on the day of Pentecost. And they begin to preach. And some of those people there were from Rome. Well, they come to faith in Christ, and they go back to Rome, and they start being missionaries in Rome. And so Paul's writing to people, most of whom he's never met. But he says, I want to. He says, as God is my witness, I could call, if I was on trial, I could call God as a witness that I have prayed earnestly for you. Literally, I pray for you constantly. Every day, not a day goes by that I'm not praying for the people I hear about in Rome. And I desperately want to come see you. Paul's going to tell us in a few minutes about why he wants to come see us. But he said, I keep making a request to God that I'd get there, that somehow by God's will, I would be able to visit you in Rome. I love the fact that Paul says, hey, everything I hear about you is good. Your faith is not just something known in Rome. But Paul says, I'm way over here, hundreds of miles away. I'm hearing about it over here. 
that you have faith. Wow. Their faith was a testimony to the world. Well, men and women, your faith is also a testimony to the world. It's either good or bad. I've shared this illustration here before, but I, I can't think of a better one at this moment. One of the things we try to train our, our children to do, I have four children, one of the things we tried to train them to do early on was put their seatbelt on when they got in the car. And I had this bad habit when I wasn't driving my car. When I drive my car, I don't even think about it. I put my seatbelt on. Actually, I don't put it on this way. I put it on this way. <laughs> but when I was driving my wife's car, we, we were in this big van, and I'm driving. I hear this voice from the back row saying, Dad, you're not setting an example. And I heard another voice say, oh, yes, he is. It's just a bad example. <laughs> well, folks, in the same way that these people in Rome, their, their faith was witnessed all over the world. People were hearing about the faith of these handful of Christians. And really, compared to the population of Rome, it was a small group of people. But Paul says that message is getting spread around. Well, folks, in Myrtle Beach or in the southeast or from anywhere on the planet that you live, if you claim to be a Christian, you're speaking volumes to other people by the way you live your life. Your faith is a witness. Let's make sure it's a good witness. Then let's get to the heart of what Paul's saying as we close in these last few verses. Let me just read verses 11 and following. Because here's the heart of Paul, and he ends these last two verses you're going to hear today, kind of set up what the whole book's about. Paul said, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. For I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. I love how direct and to the point Paul is. He simply says, here's why I have eagerly, desperately, prayed to God that I would be able to come to you because I really long to see you. I yearn I, to, I yearn just to dote upon you because of what I hear about you that I may give you something, that I may be of some spiritual benefit to you. Now, later in Romans, Paul's going to write about spiritual gifts that come from the Spirit, from God. So here he's not talking about that I'm going to give you one of these spiritual gifts he's going to talk about later in Romans, but it's simply that I could be of some spiritual benefit to you. Paul had not only heard about their testimony, but I'm also sure that he had heard about the difficulties they were having living a Christian life in a real pagan country. And so Paul says, I'm really itching to get there. I want to get there bad. I'm praying about it often. In fact, I love what he says. I don't want you to be unaware. I like the way the King James put it. It says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren. I can't read that, even, even as I was studying it this week. I can't read that without thinking back to my seminary days. I was married when I was in seminary, which was a good thing. Because I wouldn't want to have been single there. But there were two single dorms. There was a male dorm called Fort Worth Hall. There was a girl's dorm named Barnard Hall. And there was competition between the guys and the girls. 
The girls would say things like, if a man-eating tiger got loose in Fort Worth Hall, he'd starve to death. But they also loved quoting this verse, and here's how they'd quote it. I would not have you, ignorant brethren. <laughs> Think about it. The boys would go over at Christmas time to Barnard Hall and put a Y in between the words, so it said Barnyard Hall. But I kind of liked what the girls came up with. Hey, I'm going to quote Scripture. I would not have you, ignorant brethren. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying, I just don't want you to be unaware. I would not want you to lack for information that I have, I have planned to come to you. But so far I've been prevented. One thing that kept preventing Paul is he kept getting arrested. The letters that Paul writes typically are from prison somewhere. And so Paul's saying, hey, right now I'm having a hard time getting there because I'm not on time release yet. I'm not out on probation yet. I'm still in prison. But understand something, I desperately want to see you. Not just so that I can get out of here, but I want to come and see you there. I've planned, but I've been prevented. But I'm under obligation. Literally, I'm an ower. I'm indebted to give you the message of God. In fact, he, he names four types of people. To the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish. Paul's simply saying to the Greeks, which simply meant the people of that culture, not just people from Greece, but for the Greeks, and then also for the barbarians, but for the wise and also the foolish, even those who are uneducated, unintelligent. I, I want to come to all of you. Because here's the good news. The message is for all of you. It's not just for the folks who have some position in life. It's for everybody. It's not just for the wise. It's even for the uneducated, the unintelligent. The message of the gospel he said, I am eager to preach. I am already forward in spirit and predisposed that I want you to know about the good news. And you say, well, isn't the people Paul writing to, aren't they all Christians? Well, Paul's certainly writing to some Christians, but the good news of the gospel doesn't just stop at salvation. So Paul's writing to them, but he's also writing about fruit that he hopes to see happen in the, in the area of Rome. And that is that people would come to faith in him. And then listen to me. Here's what he says. Not only am I eager to do that, but I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The word ashamed at the very root of it has the word disfigurement. I don't know if something ever has happened to you where you were kind of thinking, I'm not going out in public like this. Maybe it's, you know, something has popped up on your face or maybe you've had a surgery or whatever, but you're thinking, girls, maybe it's not just that you think, I've got nothing to wear, so I'm not going out in public. But it really comes from an idea of disfigurement. It means Paul's saying, I, I am not at the point where I'm cowering in a cave back here thinking I don't want to show my face in public. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And Paul proved it because he kept preaching even when they told him to be quiet. And at times it meant that he spent time in prison for the sake of the gospel. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. And here's why I'm not ashamed. It is the power of God for salvation. It's that force. It's that miraculous power for salvation. And here's the word I want you to get today. This is where we get the word rescue or safety. Paul is saying, it's not my words. It's not my effort. It's the power of God for salvation. So listen to me. You're not the power. There's some people that are afraid to death just to share their faith because they're thinking, what if I fail? You can't fail. As long as you share the message. 
We can't save anybody. We, we aren't the power. We're plugged into the power by knowing Jesus Christ, but all we're asked to do is share the message. Just tell the good news. You're thinking, well, I don't know the Romans Road, or I don't know the four spiritual laws, or I don't know EE or CWT or whatever plan there is out there. Hey, if God has changed your life, you know that. You can tell people that. And it may simply be that you plant a seed. Or it may simply be that as you share that, you may have somebody say, I've been waiting. I've been waiting to hear that message because I know I'm lost. The only way you'll ever be rescued or saved is to know that you need a Savior. And so some of you in this room this morning, you've never come to that place where you, you recognize, you know what? I'm lost without God. Well, I got good news. The gospel. Jesus Christ has come and paid the penalty for our sin. The thing that separated us from God was sin. And Jesus Christ has come and he's paid for that so that I could know Jesus Christ. You're not the power. God is. Somebody came up to D.L. Moody one time and said D.L. Moody was a great evangelist and said, you know, I don't really like your invitation. I don't like the way you call people to faith. And, and Dr. Moody said, well, you know, I'm not real comfortable with it myself. I kind of struggle over that. And he said, tell me, what do you use to call people to faith? What method do you use? And the person said, well, I don't really have a method. He said, well, then I like mine better than yours. So I think sometimes we kind of get paralyzed by thinking, man, I can't save anybody. Well, let me give you some good news. You're not supposed to. If you save them, they're not really saved. <laughs> but if you introduce them to Jesus Christ, that's where the power comes in. The power of God for salvation. And Paul closes by simply saying, for the righteousness of God is revealed in the fact that the righteous will live by faith. Righteousness means that quality of being right or just with God. Yes, as a sinner, I'm not right with God. But through faith in Jesus Christ, I'm made right with God, not because of what I did, but because of what Jesus did. And so now I live that way by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 puts it this way, for by grace. What's grace? Grace getting something you don't deserve. By grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. The faith that you come to God with is a gift and the grace that God gives you to come by faith is a gift. And so the question this morning is, have you, have you ever done that? Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. But it goes on in that chapter to say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe that he is and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, what an awesome letter. What an awesome beginning to such an important book of the New Testament. God, help us this summer as we unpack that. Not to get bogged down in the minutia, but Lord, to, to also not gloss over it to the point that we miss the meat. Father, what a great explanation of the gospel we see in the book of Romans. And that gospel is good news. And that is that Jesus Christ offers salvation. 
He offers forgiveness of sin and he offers relationship with the Heavenly Father that starts today but can last or will last forever. It's an eternity. God, examine our hearts in two ways. First, have we ever done that? Have we ever come to faith in Christ? And then secondly, are we telling anybody else the good news? Just like the proclaimer back in the streets of Rome that would scream at the top of their lungs, the emperor has a son. God, we got better news than that. And it may not be real effective to just walk out and scream at people. But God, would you give us open doors of opportunities just to show people by our life and tell people by our words the reason for the hope that's in us. And Lord, we leave the results up to you. That's our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand as we...